Waymaker, we give you all the glory. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Thrive. This is part eight of our journey through the book of Ephesians. We're still reading chapter four of Ephesians, but before we go into the study this evening, um, let's quickly pray. So, Father, we come by the blood of the Lamb and we come in the name of Jesus. And we ask that as we go into your word, living word, that you shed your light in our hearts, that you illuminate your own words, so that everything we hear will be from your throne and from your voice itself, that our lives will change because we are going to hear and do what you're going to tell us to do. Father, let all the glory be to you and the blessings be ours. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed. Amen. Praise the Lord. Welcome again. Um, last week, part seven, Pastor Buki took us through Ephesians chapter four, verses one to 10. There is so much in what she taught us last, last week, but I'm going to do a quick summary because today, we're going from verse 11 to 32. Um, just before we get into the meat today, there might be some people that are you know, here for the very first time. We wanna welcome you. This is God's favorite house. You've joined our midweek worship experience, which is a Bible study. We call it Thrive. Um, and we have our regular services in person and online as well on Sundays, two services, 8 a.m. and 10 a.m in our church then like he addressed with someone on the screen before the end of the service. So welcome, thank you for joining us for, you know, the regulars, the, you know, the we, we welcome again, God bless you. Um, and now let's go into the word. I was saying that Pastor Buki took us through verses one to 10 message translation last week. And there was a few notes, some notes that I took from what she said that is very instrumental in setting up what we're going to do today. So bear with me as I refresh your memory, what we learned last week. Um, we learned that we should work worthy of our calling. Everyone has a calling, not necessarily in church. It might be in the marketplace, but you have a calling nonetheless. There's a path for everyone, our paths and our death, our paths and our journeys might differ, but the destination is the same. We also learned that we have a responsibility to maintain oneness in the body of Christ. We learned that Christ has given us gifts and has given them generously. Everyone has at least one gift. We learned that whatever your calling is, it must flow from love. You represent the kingdom, she taught us. Is your image consistent? Is how people see you at work the same way they see you in church? God doesn't want you to be nameless, faceless, and I added insignificant. Rise and take your mountain of influence. She taught us that we should have contact, but we should not be contaminated. 
actually, there's a lot that I won't be able to summarize in this few minutes. So I'm going to beseech you, since we're speaking the language of Ephesians, I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I said this seriously, you know, to say that please replay the message because there's so much more that I haven't said that is important, that helps us get a full understanding of what is happening here. And also there's some things in that Q&A section of the session that will just sort out some fundamental things for you, honestly. So please go and listen to it. Without further ado, um, we're going to jump into reading the book of Ephesians chapter four, we're going to read verses 11 to 16. This time we're reading from the Passion Translation. The Bible says, and he has appointed some with grace to be apostles, and some with grace to be prophets, and some with grace to be evangelists, and some with grace to be pastors, and some with grace to be teachers. And their calling is to nurture and prepare all the holy believers to do their works of ministry. And as they do this, they will enlarge and build up the body of Christ. These grace ministries will function until we all attain oneness in the, into the faith, until we all experience the fullness of what it means to know the Son of God. And finally, we become one into a perfect man with the full dimensions of spiritual maturity and fully developed into the abundance of Christ. Verse 14. And then our immaturity will end and we will not be easily shaken by trouble, nor led astray by novel teachings or by the false doctrines of deceivers who teach clever lies but instead, we will remain strong and always sincere in our love as we express the truth. All our direction and ministries will flow from Christ and lead us deeper into him, the anointed head of his body, the church. Verse 16, for his body has been formed in his image and is closely joined together and constantly connected as one. And every member has been given divine gifts to contribute to the growth of all. And as these gifts operate effectively throughout the body, we are built up and made perfect in love. We're going to take a quick pit stop here and unpack a few things Paul was telling the Ephesians. We just read Ephesians 4 verses 11 to 16, and we read it in the Passion Translation. Every time I read, maybe I shouldn't say every time, when I read um, verses 11 to 2, the message that was shared in my heart is the responsibility of one. The responsibility of one. The responsibility of one individual, a member of the body. And why do I say this? Paul starts by sharing the five ministerial graces, the ministerial gifts. And it tells us why that we have been given, the church of God, the body of God, has, we've been given those graces. And if we're not careful, our attention, and this is verses 11, to, 11 and 12, 
our attention focuses on these five ministerial graces. And our mind goes to the fact that, well, I don't have any of those graces. And immediately we stop thinking that the scripture is speaking to, to us. We say, I'm not an apostle, I'm not a prophet. There is no foretelling or foretelling in anything I do. Everybody knows I'm not an evangelist. Everybody knows I'm not a pastor or a teacher. So it's them that Paul is talking to and not me. By some imaginary handing over of button, we hand over immediately responsibility to those people and take the attention of, ourse of ourselves. If we're not careful, we will miss that part where it says in 12a, which is for me the most important part of the uh, part of the scripture that we've read so far. It says that 12a says, and they're calling. See, I'm, I don't know if you can help us and um, put 12a on the screen. It's okay if you can't, I'll just read it. And their calling is to nurture and prepare all the holy believers to do their own works of ministry. Why is that important? I'm gonna read it again. And the calling of all these people that have this ministerial gift is to nurture one, to prepare all the holy believers, everyone in church, to do their own works of ministry. You see, there's a concept in psychology a theory in psychology called de-individuation. It's called de-individuation. It was first put forward, I think in 1895, and then someone did some work on it in 1952. And it's very interesting. If you're, if you're really interested in learning more about de-individuation, you should read up on the experiment some guy called Zimbardo did in this space. Usually, psychologists use de-individuation to, to explain why human beings behave the way they behave when they're in a crowd. Um, you find out, we can see it, we've seen it many times, and when people are part of a crowd, they do things that they usually wouldn't do on the normal. Like, um, the, you find out that when there's mob action, let's say somebody kidnaps, God forbid, or somebody steals, everybody comes around. Before you know it, the person is dead on the floor. Some people have put um, um, tire on their neck. Sorry if you're you know, so you know, you not Nigerian, we're not usually like that, but sometimes that happens. And when you look at the individuals that were part of that mob action, on their own, they would never have done anything like that. They're civilized people. But when a lot of people come together, people act in a certain way. That understanding why people act that way is the theory of de-individuation. Now, the, the experiment that Zimbardo did, because you're still wondering what that has got to do with Ephesians 4.12a. In the Zimbardo exper experiment, there are lots of things that he, they found out. But two of the things that are relevant to us today is the fact that one, he said, anonymity, that when people are anonymous, their individual behavior cannot be judged, which makes it more likely 
for them to behave in a certain way. The crux of the matter is the second thing I'm about to say right now. It says when people are in a crowd, they have a lowered sense of responsibility. Let me read out, let me read out exactly what, what they wrote in the study that the individuation is more likely when people feel that other people are responsible in a situation or that somebody else, such as a group leader, has taken responsibility. Paul, I believe in 12a, that Paul was warning the Ephesians about de-individuation. If you look around you, I'm sure you can recognize some elements of de-individuation in the larger church of Christ. Do you see situations where people tend to feel that other people are, you know, are responsible for a situation? It's not me. Uh, somebody else is there the apostles, the teachers, the, those people, they're the ones that are going to kick in and take action. God shows you a picture of somebody and says, pray for this person. You're like, ah, when, I, when I'm not in the prayer department or, or, you know, you know, we all know that we have a responsibility to pray for pastor. We know we have a responsibility to pray for the church, God's favorite house. We know we have a responsibility to pray for the nation, Nigeria, it's our home country. And, I don't know, because you are not the, you know, in the prayer department, you leave it, the individuation. Paul was saying, every member has a responsibility. The fact that you don't yet have a title, you are not a group leader, you are not a pastor, you are not a prophet, evangelist, you know all the, you know all the graces, doesn't absolve you of responsibility. We all have a responsibility and we'll all continue to have such until the entire church becomes spiritually mature. To close the loop on this de-individuation stuff we're talking about, psychologists tell us that the way to counteract that is to become more self-aware. In other words, to become, to invite, mm, I need to pronounce it properly, individuate ourselves. Hold on, I'll explain shortly. The, the way I've explained the individuation so far is the negative side. If you walk away from here or you stop listening, you are going to think that the individuation is that bad part of human beings that make them act funny sometimes. But that's not the complete picture. I'll tie everything together. Just stay with me, please. Social psychologists then added their own to the matter. They said, but really, the individuation is not a, is not a bad thing. Every human being has that feeling of wanting to be part of something. That's why we align to people that look like us. We align to tribes. We align to, even in church, we align to certain, you know, um, not cliques, but society of people. So you would have the teenagers that, you know, do life together. You'll have the single females that do life together. You get the picture. 
And the individuation or group dynamics is that thing that makes us blend into the group. We want to do what the group is doing. You know, and if you come from Nigeria, it's very evident, you know, before you even do part yourself, everybody has done a shabby. We all want to form and norm into a group. That's not a bad thing. So it seems as if I've contradicted myself because I started by saying, you know, the antidote to the bad side of the individuation is to become self-aware and in other words, individuate. And at the same time, I'm coming to tell you that being part of a group and taking over the attributes of that group is not a bad thing. What exactly am I saying? And why does it sound as if I'm saying two different things? I think that's almost contradiction, but if you look at it properly, is coherent, is what Paul was actually trying to express to us. I'm gonna go back now to verse four and five that was preached last week. Verses four and five says, be one. You are one spirit. You are one body. Pastor Buki did justice to this last week. There is nothing I could possibly add to what she taught us. And I've come today to say that I believe that by its 12a is pointing to the risk of the individuation. And the antidote to the individuation is becoming individuals and becoming more self-aware. The answer we'll find in verse 16. Verse 16 starts by emphasizing the, let's read it. Let me quickly read it. For his body has been formed in his image and is closely joined together and constantly connected as one. And every member has been given divine gifts to contribute to the growth of all. And as these gifts operate effectively through the body, we're built up and made perfect in love. Verse 16 is telling us on one hand to be united and it's telling us about the positives of group dynamics, just like verses four and five. Then still in that same verse 16, it says individuate. Every member has been given divine gifts to contribute to the growth of all. To be effective, verse 16 is telling us, at the same time, you must do two things. You must ensure that you are fully engrafted into the body. And this has some positive effect, effects, but we also know that it has some negative effects. When you are part of a large body and you are anonymous, you are going to leave work for other people to do. You are not going to believe that you, know, you have a responsibility. You are going to think that the leaders are the only ones that are supposed to do the work. That's the negative side. We know that the negative also includes the natural tendency for us to become less responsible. Knowing this, and to summarize those first three chapters, I think what Paul is asking us to do is that the more grafted we become, 
the more of our gift we must use. But we should be aware of the fact that group dynamics, if we don't deliberately counter it by making yourself accountable, by, by making sure that you are not anonymous, by making sure that when you see some responsibility, you get up and you do it. If we don't deliberately do these things, we will fall into the negative part of group dynamics, which is leaving the work for everybody else. In summary of those four verses that we read, when I read these verses, I see six and not five offices. I see the office of an apostle, the office of a prophet, the office of an evangelist, the office of a pastor, and the office of a teacher, and last but not the least, the office of an activated member. They're actually, I mean, this is not Paulo, this is my own interpretation of, because of, of, if we leave it at five, and we don't already operate in one of these, those five graces, we're going to think that we don't have a responsibility. But when you remember that, I just called it an activated member. I'm sure you might find a better name. Maybe, you know, some people can uh, put it in the group. When you know that the office, you know how they say that the office of the citizen, when we're talking about government, there is the office of a member. And that office of a member, while even though you haven't been given any leadership gifts per se, you actually have been, and you have to step up and do what you're supposed to do. Still in the office of the member, um, what are your responsibilities? You have to know your gifts and how to use it. But this seems very intuitive. When the Bible was talking, when verse 11 was talking about all these offices, the next thing he said in verse 12 is that they were given this to be able to nurture the who are called the activated members. But is it not the person that, I have to say this in Yoruba and make it a verb, that Boriduro that will be taught? There's a responsibility of the activated member to make yourself available to be taught, to make yourself available to be pastored, to make yourself receptive to the teaching, to make yourself receptive to the apostolic gifts. There is a coming together and being available. You come to church, do you take notes? Do you write it down in an actual electronic or um, physical paper notebook? Do you go back and you read these things? Do you make yourself available for the work of this ministerial gifts to be able to, for them to be able to fulfill their work properly? I don't know. I guess it's a question that we all need to ask ourselves. But that's it for me from verses 14 to 16. Summary, group dynamics cause negative and positive things. We have to be aware of that and counteract those negative things by taking our places on our mountains, 
doing our part as part of the ministry because we all have ministerial gifts. Summary of everything I've said so far. Now let's move quickly to verses 17 to 32. Reading in the TPT version. So with the wisdom given to me from the Lord, I say, you should not live like the unbelievers around you who walk in their empty delusions. Their corrupted logic has been clouded because their hearts are so far from God. Their blinded understanding and deep-seated moral darkness keeps them from the true knowledge of God. Because of spiritual apathy, they surrender, surrender their lives to lewdness, impurity, and sexual, apologies, sausage obsession. But this is not the way of life that Christ has unfolded within you. If you have really experienced the anointed one and heard his truth, it will be seen in your life. For we know that the ultimate reality is embodied in Jesus. And he has taught you to let go of the lifestyle of the ancient man, the old self-life, which was corrupted by sinful and deceitful desires that spring from delusions. Now it's time to be made new by every revelation that has been given to you and to be transformed as you embrace the glorious Christ within, within as your new life and live in union with him. For God has recreated you all over again in his perfect righteousness and you now belong to him in the realm of true holiness. So discard every form of dishonesty and lying so that you'll be known as one who always speaks the truth, for we all belong to one another. But don't let the passion of your emotions lead you to sin. Don't let anger control you or be fueled for revenge, not even a day. Don't give the slanderous accuser, the devil, an opportunity to manipulate you. If any one of you has stolen from someone else, never do it again. Instead, be industrious, earning a honest living, and then you'll have enough to bless those in need. Verse 29, and never let ugly or hateful words come from your mouth, but instead, let your words become beautiful gifts that encourage others. Do this by speaking words of grace to help them. The Holy Spirit of God has sealed you in Jesus Christ until you experience your full salvation. So never grieve the spirit of God or take for granted his holy influence in your life. Lay aside bitter words, temper tantrums, revenge, profanity and insults, but instead be kind and affectionate towards one another. Has God graciously forgiven you? Then graciously forgive one another in the depth of Christ's love. As we go to, the, to, to this section of this session, I'll be reading back and forth from um, the Passion Translation and the Message Translation. Bear with me. Um, but it's also that we can understand um, the point I'm trying to make. So please, let's read the same scripture this time in the Message Translation. The message version says, and so I insist, and God backs me up on this, that there's no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. 
They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch, not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore, feeling no pain. They let themselves go into sausage obsession, addicted to every sort of perversion. But that's no life for you. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you paid careful attention to him, being well instructed in the truth, precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything connected with our old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new life, a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. When this adds up, what this adds up to is no more lies, no more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we are connected to each other. After all, when you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Verse 26 to 27, go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Verse 28. Did you used to make ends meet by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. Watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps, each word a gift. Verse 30, don't grieve God, don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Finally, make a clean break with all cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another sensitive. Forgive one another as quickly, as thoroughly and thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. We're rounding up soon. There are just a few more points to make here. I know we spent a lot, a lot of time talking about group dynamics in the first section, but verse 17 again still speaks to group dynamics, but in a different way. Whilst we are concentrating on being an active, activated member of the body, what verse 17 is telling us is that there is another group, not of God, that has the ability to influence us if we are not careful. And it seems very obvious but it's so important to Paul that in the message translation, even till verse 20 to 24, he's still talking about the effect, the impact of this other group that he described as senseless, mindless, they've lost themselves. And if you are, if you are here, if you're not from God's favorite house and you hear me say sausage, it's because we have to be PG rated. We actually have 10, 11 year old joining us for for Bible study, so we need to speak appropriately. Um, when you read the Bible, you would see the word that I'm censoring as sausage. Okay, 
the scripture describes them, Paul describes them, you know, lewd, profane, but he keeps on talking about it. It's as if he's warning the Ephesians that their impact is real. If they are not careful, if they are not careful, if they are not guarded, this, God forbid, is the influence another kind of group can have on you. And there's a part that he actually speaks about spiritual apathy. And he says, and I think we should underline that, where it says that, where Paul was describing to us that spiritual apathy or the continued, continued state thereof leads us to surrendering ourselves to the other side. In short, if you keep on discountenancing the knowledge of God, if you keep on not taking the things of God seriously, if you keep on taking your connection to the Holy Spirit for granted, you are not fully engrafted into this body, this group, then this group is waiting for you. There's no either or. You're not, there's no demilitarized zone. It's either you are fully engrafted here or you are sliding, God forbid, to the old life. That's one. The second thing that I think Paul is telling us in that verse is, I think 17 to 24, is that you can't eat your cake and have it. That same cake, you can have another cake, but you can't have that cake you have eaten. Let me, let me, let me read where he said that. He said, but there's, but there's no life for you. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you paid careful attention to him, being well instructed in the truth precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old life has to go. You cannot eat your cake and have it as well. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new way of life a God-fashioned life, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. You cannot be a Christian on Sunday and on Wednesdays and just be a random, I don't know what to call it, the rest of the days. It is only a matter of time. What Paul was describing in 17 will eventually happen to that person. Now, before... Um, we start getting, we listen to this and, you know, we do that now as believers. We read a part of scripture and we're like, oh, it's only talking about the nude people, the sausage obsessed people. Thank God I'm Holy Spirit filled. I don't have any of those issues. There's no immorality anywhere near me. There's nothing like that. And we, 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 we puff ourselves up. We put ourselves higher than everybody else. And we say, that part of the scripture is not for me. Before we start feeling that way, peradventure, anybody is listening to that and feeling, oh yeah, I'm not dealing with any of these issues, so I'm good. We have to remember the context in which the scripture was written. At that time in Ephesus, most of them, and Pastor Bolaji taught us this. Before I go ahead, shout out to all the teachers that have taught us so far. It's been an amazing journey. And of course, Papi, who always comes to you know, give us more insight. We pray that the God that gives bread to the eater and seed to the sower will give you much more 
abundance, blessing, and insight in the mighty name of Jesus. Pastor Bonaji taught us at the beginning, no one was teaching us about Ephesus. Um, and through this journey, we've learned that they had one major deity that they used to, 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 to worship. Her name was Artemis. Artemis was actually a Greek god. And in Greece, she was a second tier deity. But in Ephesus, she was a, they had promoted her to a first tier um, um, deity. As a matter of fact, the, the Artemis that the Ephesians worshipped was probably slight, was actually slightly different from the people that gave them the religion in the first place. They had added to it. They had added their own native god, goddess to it. The Greeks will see Artemis as a god um, of the huntress, you know, of um, childbirth. The Ephesians added the sausage part to Artemis. So the worship of Artemis, even though this is divided in history, when you read historians write about Artemis and, the, and her worship in Ephesus, there are two schools of thought. One school of thought says, oh, there was no sausage in our worship. But the other school of thought teaches us that they actually had people I don't know how I'm going to say this using sausage, but let me try my best to describe the worship in their temple with their priests and their priestess had people that worshipped with sausage. Let me just put it that way. It was part of their worship. And when they did it as part of the worship, the way you raise up, raise up hands, I can't even compare God to this. But the way we worship and we have a certain way of worship, sausage was part of their worship. And when they did it, it was holy as far as they were concerned. That is the tradition these people were coming from. They were coming from a, a world, a life, where these things that Paul was calling unholy were normal to them. Let's even say you don't even believe the historians that say that Part of worshiping Artemis was um, immorality, sausage immorality. Maybe we know that at this time in Ephesus, it was Romans that, was, that were in charge. And we know Romans, right? History teaches us. And thank you, Romans, of uh, long ago. They brought a lot of civilization to the world. But we also know that Romans were very, let's put it this way, liberal. And they were very um, comfortable with their body. Let me give you examples. And I'm struggling here because I know that there's some children online and I'm trying my best. Um, so, how much, um, Romans did not see anything wrong with, prostitution was legal and was, um, and was it was very common. Let's put it that way. All forms of, in quote, perversion that had to do with sausage, for a lot of them was normal. This is the context in which Paul and John and Timothy had preached to people and they had received Christ. 
They were going from something being normal to them to the, the, the lens of God that was saying, this is not right. Why am I talking like this? We need to, I'm not even absolving all those things. It is true. It is wrong. All those things are wrong. But for this to be brought into more life for us, you need to look at something that is culturally acceptable in Nigeria that you do, but is against the word of God. Just in case you're feeling morally superior to those people that are doing all forms of perversion. What is that thing? Let me give you an example. Traditional, um, traditional, and we, and we need to, we need to, we need to wrap this up quickly. Traditional religion in um, Nigeria. There's a, there's a traditional religion in Nigeria that believes that if you want to um, get healed of a disease, or if you want to um, get rid of bad luck, all you need to do is hold a fist or give certain kinds of cooked food to certain kinds of people. That is their belief. They believe that that is how you get the answers to prayers, right? And the demons that work with them trick them to believe that it is true. When that kind of person comes a, so I'm trying to, I'm trying, trying to draw a parallel so that we can bring it to life. How difficult it must have been for the efficient and why we must stay on guard and look for other things that are not mentioned in the Bible, but we still do what are wrong. Back to my story. Now, so let's say this person that used to be a traditional worship person becomes a believer. You now take that concept of cooking food for a certain kind of people in order to transfer your um, sickness or your ill health to those people. That thing right there is just as bad as everything that Paul mentioned about that Ephesians were doing, because that is the old nature that you bought that you brought into Christ. That is the reason why some people still outsource babas praying for them, even though they're believers and they're tongue speaking. The scripture is talking about everything you thought was right before Christ came into your life, and everything the Holy Spirit is convicting you for. All that Paul mentioned, plus more, you know what it is. And that verse is calling us to attention. Deal with it. Let me give us another example before we move away from there quickly. Remember when I was talking about Romans and how liberal they were? If they felt that certain things were normal, there were very few things in the sausage realm that these people did not think, you know, it was being sophisticated. If you were an officiant at that time and you wanted to hang out with um, some Roman people that had connection, please, where do you think you would have gone to meet them? Will it be in the church that Paul was? No. It would be in the places where they were hanging out doing all these funny things. Let's bring that to ourselves. What is that thing that you still do as a believer, that I still do, that we still do because we want social connections, because we want business networking that is not 
according to what the Holy Spirit wants. That fits in the old life we left behind. That is what Paul is saying to us today. That and everything he wrote down. I'm going to go quickly through my notes so that we can, we can finish on time. You know, and I just want to say that I, I don't say all this, I don't bring this perspective to soften the direct message Paul is giving us here when it comes to sausage morality, not at all. I'm just saying that God is holding us to a better standard. And we know this because he's holding us to it everywhere we look in the Bible. He says it over and over and over and over again. But it is not only sausage immorality. It is other things that you know, and I've given two examples, that come from our old life and need to leave. Because if we don't leave those things quickly, God forbid, it's only a matter of time before we slide to join the wrong group. Verse 25 is straight to the point. It says, no more lies, no more pretense, tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Translated from Yoruba, you are doing yourself if you do not tell your neighbor the truth. Nothing more to add to that. Verse 26 to 27. And I don't know if it was only me that when I read 26 to 27 in the message translation, there was some, some kind of sweeting of belay that happened there. It's almost as if, I mean, and it's not because I want to get angry or I like getting angry. It's, it's just that it's a good feeling knowing that the Bible is very practical. And the Bible is not hypocritical at all. It says, by all means, get angry. Go ahead. Do well to get angry. But don't use that anger for revenge. Don't wait. Don't stay angry. Don't take it to the next day because it will give the devil foothold in your life. No one is denying you that human emotion. Go ahead. Be angry. But when you are angry, and you can't use that anger for revenge. And you're angry, and that anger cannot wait till the next day. Bible tells you that that anger must end. You must deal with it. And you can't use it for any negative thing. After a while, that anger itself will lose its um, appeal. And that is the beauty of the Bible. It doesn't deny where we're at. It just holds us to a better standard. So you say, you want to be angry, be angry. But all the negatives that come from angry, being angry, those things that make you, you know, your eyes go red and puff up and say things, those things, stop those things. Before you know it, there'll be no point to being angry, only a matter of time. Moving on. Um, and just before we finish in the, in the chat box, let's do a little interactive exercise. Just type the last time you were angry and why you got angry. Don't tell us names of the people you were angry with. It's not our, it's not our business, really. Just say, I, this is the last time I got angry and this is why I got angry. Just, just um, type it in the chat box. We're almost done. Verse 28 is straight to the point as well. It says there is no justification for stealing. Work hard. So 
you will not only feed yourself, but feed other people. Notice that he doesn't judge the person that stole. He doesn't say, woe is you, you stole. But he says, from now on, stop it and move on, do better things. Now, as we end, I want to stop and acknowledge how many times Paul mentioned actions that we carry out with our mouth and words in this set of scriptures we just read. Number one, he said, do not lie or be dishonest. Number two, he said, talk to your neighbor, tell your neighbor the truth in love. He said, do not let ugly or hateful words proceed from your mouth. Let your words be beautiful. He said, lay aside bitter words. Then he said, lay aside temper tantrums. Then he said, lay aside profanity. He ended by saying, lay aside insults. There was such a focus on actions slash inactions that have to do with words and what you say from your mouth. First, in my mind, it just painted an image that Ephesians must have been very, you know, sharp-mouthed, savage responses, sarcastic people. But then, isn't the average person on social media like that? No, no, no offense, but can we just turn this mirror on ourselves and look at ourselves again? Jesus is the living word. That's what the scripture says. The spiritual response to words. They don't understand that you're being savage or you're being sarcastic or you're playing around or you're being upset. If you say it out of your mouth, the negative, super, um, the negative supernatural is waiting to action those things you said, even though you were plain or just you were upset or you were angry. And the positive supernatural, the Holy Spirit, is frankly just sad and hurt that you can use the same mouth with which you come and praise him to use to tear down somebody that he died for. So I'm going to end with a question. We know that you've given your life to Christ. The question is, have you given your words and your speech to Christ? Is your mouth born again? Papi is here. Hola. Hello, Papi. <laughs> Hola, Papi. <laughs> Welcome, Papi. Uh, I just want to say that after reading all this, um, I'm thankful that Sunday came before Wednesday. <laughs> and you taught us Romans 7 and 8 before this. Because after all this, all I can say is thank God for Romans 8. Welcome, Papi. <laughs> uh, are your words born again? Amen. Yes. <laughs> yes. I believe so. It's a question we have to. I have to keep on asking myself. Very powerful. You know, and... Oh, okay, sir. I can't hear you, Papi. Very powerful. Oh, thank you, sir. Well done. Amazing. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. So I have questions. Okay. I have two questions. Well, before I ask my question, I should be charitable. Um, the people that are joining us online, I don't know um, if you have any questions. If you do, please send those questions through um, on the social media channels we have. The people waiting to bring the questions here. There's a lot said, but a lot also said. It was a struggle to finish those verses uh, very quickly. So I'm sure you have some questions. And please just send those questions through. I'll start by asking my question. My first question is from verse 13. Grieving the Holy Spirit. Grieving the Holy Spirit. 
And um, even before I became a believer, that verse of do not grieve the Holy Spirit as a almost a threat was a verse that almost everybody would have heard even before they, the, the, they, they give their lives to Christ. So how can you grieve the Holy Spirit? What can you do to grieve the Holy Spirit? Several things. I mean, um, the Holy Spirit is a person. So, so several things that can grieve a person can grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, you can be, when you are rude to a person, you can grieve the person. Correct? Yes. So when you are rude to the Holy Spirit, you can, you can grieve him by being rude to him. When you ignore a person, let's say I walk into the room and I just ignore you completely, you know, and we are supposed to be friends and you're like trying to get my attention and I just ignore you. You feel grieved, wouldn't you? So many times we go about our day and we don't even acknowledge the Holy Spirit. We don't even behave as if he exists. We ignore the Holy Spirit. And, and on and on and on and on. You know, we we use our words. How we use our words are so powerful. The words you speak. When you're angry, the words you speak. Now, if you are with your dad, your physical dad, and one of your brothers offends you, because your dad is present, there are certain things you will not say. You know, out of respect for daddy is here, otherwise I will have dealt with you. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, so, but many times, believers, someone upset us, we ignore the Holy Spirit completely and his presence and we just go ahead and unleash on the person. You know, um, I, I have a friend back in the years ago that she was telling me that her sister upset her so much that she said to the Holy Ghost to stay first, you know. <laughs> you know? And, and after she had thoroughly dealt with the person, then she now continued a communion with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, and, and I can cite several examples. Obviously, the one that a lot of people talk about and it's also very powerful and significant is how we use our bodies, you know how we use our bodies, because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So um, if you are getting sausage from different channels, <laughs> you know, from, from different barbecue stands, you know, um, you're getting sausage from this barbecue stand, from that barbecue stand, from that, you know, you are dishonoring your body, you know. Um, if you are not, as I remember, you are blushing. If you are not, if if you are not um, eating properly, you know, believe it or not, you are dishonoring your body. 
yeah, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, um, you are not exercising. You are not keeping your body fit. It's it is a dishonor of the body. You know, it is an abuse of the body. You are not sleeping enough. It's 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 an abuse of the body. You're not giving your body enough rest, you know, and and, and you know I don't want to say if you are sleeping too much too. <laughs> so, so we we see that it could be it's it's a myriad of things, and when you see the Holy Spirit as a person, you are um more um aware of these things. You know, and not just as a force or as as some electricity you feel and some goose pimples you feel. No, it's a person, you know. Okay, hope that helped. Yes, thank you. My second question was triggered by um, at the setup, how Pastor set up the book of Ephesians made me want to read about the seven churches in, in Revelation. And reading about, going to read about where they are today or where they are not more like it, none of those churches stand today. All those churches are in modern day Turkey where it is 99.98, another religion. And sometimes I wonder, how did that happen? Mm. Okay, so we all know that all of them had some issues that, you know, clearly we just finished reading Ephesians now and what Paul was talking to them about. Mm. Um, and all of them had their own different letters, things that they were working on. But how is it that they were all <laughs> wiped off? I mean, there's some, there's some, but in most of those places, in all, most of those, some of those churches, there's no church in those places anymore. In some places, the churches, but you know, the Christians are just a little, how did that happen? And God forbid, how do we ensure that the church of Nigeria, the church of South Africa, that, don't, that doesn't happen to us? Well, um, I, I don't know how it happened to those churches. I wasn't there. <laughs> but, <laughs> But I can say that there are certain patterns between scriptures and certain things that we can um, begin to understand on extinction of of um, of systems of movements and all that. So um, next week on, on Sunday, in part three of of um, winning the visible world, I'll be sharing uh, how Paul was saying to, to Timothy that the things you have heard of me, you have heard of me, commit, you have heard of me, commit to faithful men that will be able to teach others. So we see four generations. Paul was a generational thinker. So we see four generations and we have to be deliberate in passing these words to our children, both physical children and spiritual children. 
if we do not disciple our children, physical children and spiritual children, this gospel will end with us. That's the truth. And God forbid that it does. So, which is also why, I mean, we have to have physical children because the other religion that you mentioned, one of their, one of their greatest tools of evangelism in this dispensation is creation, is procreation. They just procreate. One man has seven, and all of those sevens are hitting their heads on the ground. They are indoctrinated. And that is why every father, or every mother, every parent, must, you must indoctrinate your children. They, you, it, that is your call. You must indoctrinate them. And of course, it's the Lord that will save their souls. But you will do your job, like my grandmother did, I mean, and, and all that, and, and you know, a lot of my story. So if we don't commit to faithful men that will be able to teach others, if each person focuses on four generations, the church will not be extinct. The church can be attacked. The church can be pressured. The church can be, but the church in any location will not be extinct. So I, I don't know what they did, you know, I mean, to make them extinct, but I know what the word of God says we should do so that we will not be extinct. And that is, we should play the long game. We should think transgenerationally, you know, this thing must not end with you. It must not end with you. You must fight for that. It, it, it can be bloody, but you must fight for it. It must not end with you. And the enemy will try to end it with you, but it will fail in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Amen. I, I hope that helps, it, though. It, it, it's a perfect answer. Um, yeah, and it's a call to action. Yes, it did. It did help. <laughs> we Call don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. We don't. Um, I haven't seen any question come come through yet. You know. So. Okay. So maybe I should ask you a question. You see, this is what happens when you don't <laughs> send the question. <laughs> Go you ahead, Bucky. You said. Um, something about the office of the activated member. So um, that is, I mean, so powerful because the office of the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, is their KPIs is how activated the members are. So if the members are not activated, we are failed, practically. So, so um, mostly the, um, and they, there's responsibility on both sides. So mostly I've seen a lot of pastors, prophets, apostles, evangelists, this and that, that treats members as, um, the object of ministry and not necessarily members 
to be active in ministry. So they see members as objects on which ministry must be done on. Yeah. Instead of seeing the members as I need to release you into ministry, whatever, wherever that is. So there's a responsibility on that side. And there's also responsibility on the member side, which is most, a lot of people just want to come to church, hear a good word, let God bless me, bless my family, and let me just go. So how do, what would you say to the members about getting activated if they're in an environment like Gospel House that the leaders are all about activating people how would you yeah. what would you say what would i say I, th I think the first thing i would say is that you you have a responsibility i mean Ephesians 4 even if you don't read any other part of the bible <laughs> Ephesians 4 that we read today talks about the fact that you have been gifted Everyone has a gift and you're supposed to use that gift in a group. So it's not about, and for a very long time, we focused on the actions of the five offices, oh. which is how this word has been preached to us until I got to God's favorite house. But this sixth office is as important, like Papi, Papi just said now. Um, there's a rough proverb that came to my mind when you were talking and it was making me Google inside. I hope I'm able to say it well. Um, um, it says, mm. basically meaning that, <laughs> thank you to the people that make the, made the food, mm -hmm. but thank you also to the people that ate the food mm. because if somebody makes the food and it is not eating, what is the point of that food? Every member needs to, number one, take up their gifts, take their mountain of influence and be active because you're living a spot. Well, the truth of the matter is that there's no vacuum when it comes to God. He could replace. He could even replace with a stone. But the impact that, you, that has your fingerprint on it, that has your DNA on it, is missing. And that role is important. And it is not less important than the role of an apostle mm. or a teacher or a pastor mm. or a, you know, you know, all the five offices. Every part is important. That's what I would say. And there's space for you in God's favorite house. Six over six. Take your place. Let's go. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well done, Pastor Evami. Amazing, um, amazing teaching. God bless you, in Jesus' name. Amen, sir. Okay, thank you again, everybody. Thank you, Pastor Obami, again for an amazing um, tribe session. Um, the Lord bless you all and keep you. The Lord make Amen. His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift Amen. up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And, Amen. and so shall it be. In Jesus' mighty name, we are prayed. Amen. Okay, so God's favorite house, let's remember that this is our year of lifting. And we are lifted. All the way. All the way. Amen. Thank you for listening to this. I want to encourage you to share this resource with your family and friends. God bless you.